This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. So let's talk a little Tesla. We do it often. We're also very fortunate that we get to do it pretty often with Dana Hull. She follows the company so closely. And the headline on the story today that she wrote with Gabby Coppola really sums it up. Tesla Capital Raise keeps $14 billion virtuous circle rolling. It certainly does. And Dana, one of the things that struck me, and you just nail it right there at the top of your story, is... Normally, in this sort of situation, you would look at a company saying, oh, we got to go get more money as a little bit of a problem. Oh, we're diluting shareholders. That's a little bit of a problem. And yet, and yet, this is Tesla. Tesla does not go the way uh, that people normally expect. Help us understand the context here. Yeah, I mean, I think what you're seeing now is that, you know, it's always about the future, right? Elon Musk is always selling this vision of the future. And now that they they seem to have mastered, you know, the the, the the past challenges of actually getting the Model 3 out the door, the share price is really high. You know, the idea of them going out and getting money so that they can do things like build out this plant in Berlin or per- perhaps another plant in Texas seems more doable. So people are more than willing to kind of fund the vision of the future and the, the banks get fees and, you know, everyone sort of wins out. Dan, I'm also wondering if Gene Munster puts this correctly, as you write in your story where you say, you know, Elon had assured investors he didn't plan to raise capital. His backpedaling is a criticism, but frankly, the state of the balance sheet is a bigger criticism. So perhaps this is seen as a good thing because it could shore up the balance sheet. Yeah, I mean, and some and some analysts like David Whiston of Morningstar, they just wish that Tesla would go out and raise like five billion dollars and be done with it, like and just raise a ton of money and, and 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 be set instead of having to go back to the market sort of year after year. But it is kind of funny how you know just on their earnings call two weeks ago. Musk was asked very specifically, do you have any plans to do a raise? And he's like, no. And then, you know, two weeks two weeks later, here we are. This is the second time that he's done that, actually. So, you know, people people are a little frustrated that, you know, that he says one thing and then they do the other. But from an investor perspective, having money on hand is always a good thing. And so, Dana, you know, this is also a good moment to ask you about sort of the state of Musk. You know, we have a, a fairly good sense of the state of Tesla. What do you sort of draw conclusion-wise from looking at the company right now, looking at the decision-making, and especially this amazing run? Where's sort of Elon's mind as much as uh, anybody can understand it outside of his own head? Well, I, it's not like I'm talking to, talking on the phone with the guy every day. I mean, right. <laughs> I don't have I have not like interacted with him directly recently. But you know, I think that this is a guy whose entire career and much of the kind of mystique and persona around him is built around him proving doubters wrong. And so, like the classic example is with SpaceX. 
they were, you know, for for months they tried to like land this rocket on a drone ship. No one thought they were ever going to be able to pull it off. And now they've not only have they done it several times, but it's kind of become old hat. Like most, you know, we don't even cover the drone ship landings right. anymore. And with Tesla, like you know, the Model Three, everyone questioned what the demand would be like when they started building the factory in China. There were a lot of skeptics who said that this mud pit would never turn into a factory. And now, like here they are, like building cars in China. And so I think he feels probably emboldened. Um, certainly, um, you know, he has a very long kind of time horizon, and so people always ding him for being late on his promises, but he ultimately does tend to deliver on them, like maybe not in the time frame that he originally anticipated, but, you know, you look around at the at the competitive landscape, uh, you know, no other rocket company is landing rockets quite in the way that SpaceX is. No other automaker is selling electric vehicles in the volumes that Tesla is. And it's like a, a new decade. They've had two quarters of back-to-back pro- back-to-back profits. Um, you know, they just went out to the market and raised another $2 billion. I mean, I think he's feeling pretty good about things right now. Dan, I'm doing my Elon Musk dance right now for our YouTube video. Jason, if you can see me. <laughs> I this can is the see Elon it. Musk it dance. Good. That's the dance. All right. You know, Dan, on a more serious note, Elon Musk and Tesla have been criticized for the lack of investment in R&D and CapEx last year. And, of course, then they got a big profitability number. But some of the concerns now, if you come out with a $3.5 billion CapEx budget, can you still be profitable on that number? What are you hearing? Well, I think that, I think that I think it'll be really interesting to see what the first quarter is, which they've sort of hinted at will, is likely going to be soft because of seasonality and the and the fallout from the coronavirus. But you know, I mean, that's that's one of the things that Musk has gone back and forth on. They've said they'll be season. They've said that they'll be sustainably profitable, and then they're like, unless we're investing in growth, but they're always investing in growth. So, are investors willing to kind of take? You know, I mean, I guess the question is, what do investors want? Do they want profitability every quarter, or do they want the company to really kind of come and dominate. And I think some investors are willing to sacrifice short-term profits if it means long-term, you know, sort of market dominance. All right, Dana Hall, we really appreciate it. Tech reporter looking after all things Tesla, all things Elon Musk. That is, as we joked yesterday, Taylor, like eight full-time jobs. All right, she joined us on the phone from San Francisco. All right. Well, there were a lot of opportunities for songs leading into this segment. Uh, It also is a story and a discussion that helps solve a little bit of a mystery that's been going on over at Goldman, which is where are all these guys going? Uh, A lot of big tech guys leaving, and at least one has landed, and he's landed in the marijuana business. Srinath Arajan here with me in New York City, finance reporter looking after all things Goldman for us and much more across Wall Street. Uh, So tell us about Mike Blum. Well, a high-frequency trading expert at Goldman is uh, ditching his prestigious partnership role to go and join a company that's going to open a bunch of weed dispensaries across the country. You missed an obvious opportunity to make a high-frequency joke, but... I'm going to let that slide. Were you surprised by this move? Oh, my God, Taylor, no offense, but I really miss Carol because if she was here, the amount of serious eye rolls oh, we would be getting. So many eye rolls. So many eye rolls. So many eye rolls. I'm, I'm eye rolling. Jason just can't see me because I'm not with him in person. Luckily, all of our YouTube viewers can see it. I, I, I just have to be the polite guest I can. I know. I know. You're so nice. No, but to your question, Jason, it's instructive in many ways, right? Uh, of course, when people leave firms, 
why they choose to do it, when they do it. There are a variety of different factors, family, lack of interest in the role, new opportunities. But still, when you decide to leave your perch as uh, you know, a partner at Goldman Sachs, their highest title, one of Wall Street's foremost investment banks, and decide to take a different opportunity, in this case, a startup in, in the marijuana space, it just uh, it gives you a sense of where he thinks the real opportunity mm -hmm. lies and perhaps also indicative of the fact that he wasn't entirely, fully, 100% committed to what he was doing at Goldman because he did have a weighty task. He did win approval and a lot of funds to make a bunch of hires, to make a big push to overhaul their electronic trading systems, uh, had to convince senior management and a number of other people to be able to get those projects rolling. And for him to be re leaving a few months after that, uh, it was a bit of a surprise when we heard about it. And it seems uh, he's decided to go out there and pair up with some of his ex-colleagues from a previous firm to join this startup venture. Sri, I'm curious to get your thoughts about what's going on at Goldman more generally. You originally never really heard a lot of stories about people leaving. It's so hard to get into that once you're there at Goldman, you are really excited to be there and to work your way up. We've seen, though, a lot of departures recently, especially from the top ranks. Is there a lack of vote of confidence in Goldman or is there just a bigger vote of confidence somewhere else? Uh, that's a tough question, Taylor, because, uh, and we had this discussion yesterday when we were thinking about all the troubles at Goldman and all the people leaving. When we go back a year ago, the January, February of 2019, again, we saw a lot of departures. We were able to explain away a lot of that saying, hey, whenever there's a new management, and in this case, David Solomon took over the role of CEO and chairman from Lloyd Blankfein, you expect a change of the guard. You expect a lot of people aligned with Lloyd or the old guard to be leaving. And uh, the new guy comes in and installs a lot of his people at various roles. And in an ambitious, competitive place like Goldman, you will see a lot of churn. The difficult part here, the troubling part here is a year later, 15 months in his tenure, we're still talking about this time of the year and the kind of high profile departures we're seeing, which, is, which has got a lot of tongues wagging across Wall Street for sure and the competitors are paying attention. You, you can be guaranteed about that. And somebody else leaving. And, and you, the other, other names that we included in the story couldn't play it high up because I was just so much interest in giving all the details on the marijuana <laughs> startup. Otherwise, Jason would have killed us. But uh, yes, uh, Jeff Winner uh, joined Goldman two years ago after having senior engineering roles in places like Stripe and Uber. Silicon Valley name. He was supposed to build out this big San Francisco office for Goldman. Uh, and he's gone in under two years. It's funny when we, when we sort of look back at the old clips and the interviews we did with him at the time of his joining, he talked about how there is still a lot of stuffiness in this place, but the bank is working to get rid of it. Right. He talked about free-flowing kombucha. Uh, unfortunately, before he could get his free fill of uh, kombucha, he's decided uh, he's had enough. All right. Well, uh, it's a good story. Thank you for being a good sport as I make all my terrible, terrible uh, marijuana puns here. It's a Friday afternoon. It's been a long week and, you know, it's just too good. It's just too easy. It's sitting right there. Sri Natarajan, uh, always doing such a great job with the comings and goings at Goldman Sachs and Goldman Parcher, partner ditching a pursuit of quants for a marijuana startup is a really nice story and one of the most read on the Bloomberg. All right, so when it comes to Valentine's Day gifts, maybe this isn't the one you want unless you want your Valentine to be both ignoring you and maybe really, really mad at you. It's such a great story. We're talking about stave puzzles. 
where the torture is the point. Devin Leonard wrote this story, quite an assignment he got for Bloomberg Business Week. As I joked earlier, Devin, you know, usually you're doing these deep dive investigations. <laughs> you're telling us about like Mick Mulvaney and Steve Mnuchin and uh, folks like that. But here we are uh, talking to you about puzzles. So why? What's going on here? I don't know. This is a really weird one. I mean, I mean, this is a company basically that until recently was run by a guy who described himself as its chief tormentor. Its customers, they all basically say they're addicts, and, and I mean to these weird games. Some of which the company says are, are created by you know a sadist. So uh, I mean, this is not the type of story I do, I do all the time. And I had no idea what I was getting into when Joel Weber, the magazine editor, asked me to do it. Yeah, Devin, how did you find this story? I, I'd never even heard. I'd never heard of this company. I'd never, I never. I, I'm not a puzzle guy. Yeah. Uh, and and. Uh, but Joel kind of is. I mean, I, I think he. That part of it is he knew about this from maybe being tortured. Or a cousin, or, 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 yeah. or, or, or something. But uh, no, I, I, I just, I, I just had, I just had no idea. And it really wasn't. I, I, I went up there and I stayed at that place. It's really swanky, uh, you know, resort. Twin Farms, and they had them in all the rooms. I, I, I couldn't do mine. My daughter later did it in, in, in ten minutes, but. Uh, but but that's when I started to see like hey wait a minute you know you know the, you know the the rooms the suites I go for you know a thousand two thousand dollars a night and you know you know there's something you know there there's something going going on here and then I went over to the company and basically they took me all around and showed me all these crazy puzzles and then they showed me a whole wall and there's Jeff Bezos and yeah. Bill, Bill Gates and Queen Elizabeth and the Bush family and you know so basically all these people. Um, I mean, well, you have to have money because because the, the puzzles cost as much as you know ten 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 grand. So. Right. I have to say, like it, in reading your story, it feels like, and, and you've just uh, illustrated it pretty well. It's almost like you go down this rabbit hole, right? <laughs> you know, into into this place where people are sort of obsessive about it. Clearly, they appeal to a certain type of person. Tell us about the puzzles themselves. Well, the, the I mean, they're. They're they're sort of I guess they're very they're very I guess they're beautiful I mean yeah. I'm, I'm not really a puzzle person but they're designed in ways to, to just be be very difficult they come in boxes they're blue boxes so you don't have a picture of the puzzle in the box when you put it together they throw in pieces that purposely don't fit then they have all these other tricks that that, that they use to sort of drive people crazy but that but then you you know you wind up talking to the people who spend all this money on, you know on these things so that's what they want yeah. they want to kind of be tortured and and you know they want things to be really hard and they want it to be a challenge and sometimes it drives them crazy and one guy said he's he curses at his puzzles but he buys 10 a year or, sorry not 10 a year 10 at a time oh Wow. You know, Devin, I'm going on the website right now and there's a puzzle for Valentine's Day that Jason's going to get me. It's $907. <laughs> it has a sweetheart little street. It's called Sweet Streets, uh, just in time for Valentine's Day. But in your story, you talk about a lot of other uh, cool ones, um, like these boxes and locks and very non-traditional, right? Talk to us about some of these crazy uh, puzzles that you mentioned in your story. Well, maybe the best example is, you know, this custom-made one that they made for this guy in, in Dallas. His name's Hal Brierley. He's a really interesting guy in and of himself. I mean, he's sort of one of the fathers of customer, lo customer loyalty programs. He either designed them or ran them for the major airlines, for Hertz, for uh, Hilton. But basically, he's, he's, he's a guy, he's, he, so he's a workaholic, and he needs these puzzles sort of to get his mind off of off of work he, you know, he's still like 74 and he's still doing this so so basically 
his, uh, his wife and his sister-in-law have been ordering him these custom-made puzzles. And, uh, you know, the, the one, he, the one he's, he's working on, he can't finish. It's driving him nuts. It's more than a 1,000 pieces. And it's uh, designed, you know, it's inspired by these African safari trips they've all taken. Two-thirds of the pieces are all blue. And basic, basically, what he, he doesn't understand. I mean, maybe he's figured out now. I don't think he has. But there's a whole other level to, to the puzzle that fits on top of the continent of Africa. It's all water. But the, but the pieces are almost all the same size. There's no guide. And this is a really smart guy who does tons and tons of puzzles, but he can't figure it out. And he's, I mean, I mean, he basically said, I'm a guy who builds by the hour. I've sort of calculated how much time it's going to take. I don't know if it's worth it, but <laughs> right. I love these things. So, You know, one of the things that occurs to me, Devin, and I wonder if this occurred to you as you were working on it, this feels like kind of an analog antidote to a very digital world, right? You know, it's very mm. tactile. And even some of the other things you talk about are experiential. Right. Right. And more and more, it does feel like, and, and you've alluded to this already, this is an escape from being in front of these screens or holding our phones and things like that. People draw a lot of satisfaction out of this. Yeah, and, and, and it is sort of amazing that, that in this day and age, some little company could, you know, prosper by making something that's sort of I, I guess now you can buy them online but they used to everything used to be in, uh, you know done through the mail and they said they I think they still do send you know thank you notes handwritten thank you notes and I mean the whole thing is so sort of retro but I think that's sort of the point I mean the one thing for them is the customers are all pretty old just about everybody I talked to was in their 70s so right. I mean I did see them among other things well it's Valentine's Day they designed these puzzles for people that you know some person puts it together with their significant other and then as they're finishing it you know the you know the, the, the they put these pieces in i guess i guess the person who bought the puzzle gives them oh by the way i got these pieces and then and it says will you marry me oh, and, boy. and 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 i guess the the one example the, the one or two examples they showed me the answer was no but <laughs> oh no, <laughs> no. Oh, so goodness. so you know buyer beware right but but um but it, I mean, it's it's uh, it's 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 like nothing I've, I've ever seen before. Yeah, so. absolutely. Well, I need, it, go I ahead, need to meet that girl who said no. I think I'm a fan <laughs> of hers. <laughs> you know, but on a more serious note, I think like you were alluding to, Jason, in this digital world, I remember during Superstorm Sandy when all of our lights went out, we're all doing puzzles by candlelight, right? Because our mobile devices stopped working. And around Christmas time when we're all on our phones, it's kind of a nice break to maybe just sit down and do a puzzle. And so I'm really wondering if this is the beginning of a bigger trend where we put some of these mobile devices down and use this as a really way to connect with people again. If you can afford it. If you can afford it, that's absolutely true. Well, uh, this is a really terrific story. It is being consumed pretty madly on the Bloomberg Terminal and online. This one's going to have a long okay. tail, I can guarantee you that. Devin Leonard wrote it. He is a projects and investigations reporter, a different sort of project in this case, <laughs> uh, looking into some very tough to solve puzzles. It's one of my favorite stories of the week. Not surprisingly, Annie Massa wrote it. It's about big money on big money. Uh, Vanguard, we're talking about the mutual fund manager looking after mutual funds, looking after index funds, getting into the business of private equity, sort of dipping its toe a bit, but 
we think probably they're going to put a leg in it before too long. Annie's here with me in New York City, Taylor Riggs in San Francisco. All right, so Annie, tell us what Vanguard's up to. So Vanguard has announced plans for a new private equity fund that at first will only be available to institutions, smaller institutions like endowments and nonprofit foundations, but that it hopes to open up to a broader range of investors as it can. And it's doing this with HarborVest Partners managing the fund um, out of Boston. So Annie, the interesting thing is that Vanguard is known for low cost, passive indexing. This is now PE, which you think of as high fees, certainly nowhere near passive investing. How does this fit into Vanguard's strategy? It's a great question. As you know, Vanguard is synonymous with this kind of retail-facing, ultra-low-cost index fund ethos that it was really built on. But, I mean, it does have an active management arm. It's got over a trillion dollars in active strategies. And it sees this PE vehicle as a continuation of that. But that's not to understate that it really is a departure for such a huge indexing giant or an index fund giant. Um, So PE, obviously, it's a place with higher fees, longer lockup periods, and uh, just a very different realm of investing than index funds. And so tell us about the experimentation that's happened so far, because other big money managers, the big three, you know, we called Vanguard, you called, you helped us understand uh, a few weeks ago, Vanguard, State Street and BlackRock. There's been some experimentation here, right? Yeah, that's right. Vanguard's certainly not the only one of those three big fund firms to try and get into PE. You also saw BlackRock two years ago announce its own new private equity style vehicle called long-term private capital that's taking stakes in private companies. And it's another indication, now that you see Vanguard doing it as well, that private equity is becoming kind of irresistible Mm -hmm. to these firms. And, you know, fees are something that you cannot ignore. Um, And also, there's more institutional ability to allocate to private equity. Um, You see funds raising record amounts. So it's a piece of the market that they don't want to be left out of for much longer. Andy, I also wonder if this is classic peak PE, that if Vanguard is getting in, it's just a sign of my mom, my dad, my grandma, you know, every sort of retail investor wanting a piece of the action, and that is a sign that we are at peak PE and we should all be running for the hills. Taylor, don't be so dismissive of the rigs. They're very sophisticated (laughs) investors. (laughs) With um, no offense to anyone in your family and their <laughs> investing strategies, Taylor. Um, is that some people say, some um, kind of advocates for individual investors have said, you know, we haven't, th- this vehicle is not open to retail investors yet. And it's important to note that there are regulatory restrictions on who can invest in PE right now. You see big firms like uh, Blackstone and KKR and Apollo wanting to angle into a a broader audience um, and open up their private equity uh, vehicles to more investors. But what these um, advocates for individual investors say in some cases is, you know, they're not sure that it makes sense to change the rules about who can invest in PE because they're more esoteric, the lockup periods are longer, and they say that it might not necessarily be a good thing for the end investor or like the less sophisticated investor. Well, and as you uh, noted there, Blackstone and others, Blackstone, Carlisle, KKR, they are 
desperate to get to this like holy grail of the retail investor. They just see this as this massive pool that they want to swim into the to their heart's content, right? And if you think about it, you you can't really have PE in a 401k, right. for example. But I think that they might argue a 401k is a perfect place for a private equity fund because you're not really supposed to touch that money for mm -hmm. long periods of time, for decades. So it makes perfect sense to you know, put a PE-style vehicle in there. Um, of course, they have products to sell, so you have to keep that in mind as they you know, make their case uh, in Washington. Annie, any sort of thoughts on when we would see this uh, type of vehicle be open to retail investors? There's no real clarity around that yet, but regulators are reassessing whether they should change some of the restrictions on private equity investments. So it's a an issue that's evolving, and um, Vanguard is, uh, I think, trying to get ahead of it because I think they wouldn't want to be caught flat-footed if the regulations were to change um, with their army of uh, advisors that could potentially sell those um, kinds of vehicles yeah, to Vanguard, their Yeah, Vanguard trying to be on the Vanguard. All right, Annie Massa. Investing reporter for Bloomberg, uh, keeping a very close eye on everything that happens in the world of big money on our investing team. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I wanna drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, it's time for the drive to the close. Let's get into it with Rob Croce. He is Senior Portfolio Manager for Risk Parity and Managed Futures at Mellon. Joining us on the phone from Boston. Rob, great to have you with Taylor Riggs and myself. So what are you seeing in this market right now? It feels like we're kind of catching our breath here on a Friday after a few turbulent weeks and candidly, a couple turbulent Fridays where you saw a big sell-off going into the weekend. It still feels like a risk-on market to us. Yeah. Um, you know, when we, when we saw the response of the market to, you know, frankly, pretty big macro news, uh, including coronavirus, um, and, and the market just seems to continue to shrug off risk with the idea that monetary policy has got our back. Um, it, it's, the market has a really positive sentiment here. Rob, I was reading through your notes, and one thing that I really liked is you're talking about value go long, cheap stocks, short, expensive ones. We were talking in an earlier segment about the rotation or really the lack of rotation here between value and growth. You still preferring value here? You know, as a, as a quant investor, we try to be empirically driven. And the truth is that for a big investor that has to deploy significant capital, traditional value, uh, it just naively applied, has never really worked. So mm -hmm. if, if you break down what's driven, you know, Fama French factor performance, it, it, it was tiny stocks. And it was actually the short side of tiny stocks. So small stocks that have been really beaten down and are still expensive – those are, those are the ones that have tended to do very poorly, and being short those has been, has, has been a great booster for value strategies. And so if you look at the, the, the data that 
is underneath of the original papers on value, they are not supportive of just being long a big naive value index portfolio. Never worked, doesn't work now. So talk to us about factors, Rob. Remind us, you know, for our audience that's uh, not as familiar, what that involves, what basically the lens through which you see the market is. Absolutely. When we think about the market, we're thinking about it as a, a, a group of stocks that are weighted by their market capitalization relative to each other. So when I think about beta, that is just exposure to the market as it exists in the market today. I'm buying more of stocks that, that have higher market cap and less of stocks with lower market cap. Smart beta, or, or sort of long-only factor exposure, is wh where you don't, you're still long-only, but you've got ex exposure only to stocks with certain characteristics. So you let go of that cap weighting methodology and you begin to weight based on something, the attractiveness of valuations or how well it's done recently or how defensive it is, low volatility it is, how it, the quality of the stock's earnings. So those are smart beta portfolios. I'm still long only, but I'm long a basket of stocks I think will outperform the market because they have good characteristics. And then how are factors long short are smart beta minus beta just the smart part rob curious to see how you are factoring in momentum at this point if at all so we're always factoring in momentum momentum is one of the factors that works across cap sizes so if you're a big investor you can still take advantage of momentum strategies the other thing about momentum is it's the same language across asset classes so it's very straightforward for me to build a portfolio where I'm doing momentum in cash equities, I'm doing momentum in equity indices, I'm doing momentum in, in bonds and commodities. It's, it is a very robust factor, and frankly, it's been a much better performing factor than value since, since it was discovered. Do you have, I'm curious to dig a little bit more into the momentum question, if you've ever seen momentum like this before, you think of the massive run up, the length of the bull market, and the rate at which we have gotten to fresh record highs every day. Have you seen this type of momentum before as you take a look at your factor models? We've seen, we haven't seen this length of a bull market in stocks. I mean, I think that that's you know, unequivocal. But what we've clearly seen is, is runs where you have made as much money, it being long or short based on momentum. What's different in this market is that if you're, if you're, if you're talking about trend, trend following, which is momentum, but, long, but, but with a drifting bias to being long when stuff's going well on average, um, it, it, this is not a market that's been permitted to fall. So it, it used to be the case that when sentiment got bad, it could get worse and get worse after that, and that markets would continue to fall, and there would this be this building sort of bad sentiment that gets worse and worse. That has not happened. Monetary policy has got our back, um, and and anytime the market really starts to do very poorly, monetary policy expectations change, Treasury yields plummet, and the party starts over again. And, and because of that, that's been hard because a lot of, as a factor investor, a lot of what we do in factor space makes money when, thing, when sentiment changes for the, for the worse. That is a big part of why factors have been so awful lately. So, Rob, you know, we started the conversation talking about a market that has been uh, shrugging it off or maybe in the uh, words of another Taylor, Taylor Swift, shaking it off. Uh, <laughs> when you think about the coronavirus, you think about how global markets and certainly the U.S. market has continued with a couple notable exceptions to really take it in stride. 
Does that worry you at all? Does that sort of go against what you would expect given all the, the factors you talked about? It, it, it does. A lot of stuff worries us because, but, but as you know, those worries are the same thing that cause an investor that doesn't have discipline, doesn't have a process to, to bail out before, before they, they've done as well as they can in the market. You know, most of our investors need to make 7 plus percent return a year on average in order to meet their, their liabilities. And you can't make that kind of return in a high valuation market, especially if you're not invested. Right. And so tapping out is not an option. So what's left? Well, you, you basically have to manage risk very actively. You stay in the market and you monitor for, for when the environment changes and you adapt very quickly. And that's what we do across our platform uh, with all of our adaptive strategies. All right, Rob Croce is Senior Portfolio Manager for Risk Parity and Manage Futures, talking to us about smart beta factors and so much more. He works at Mellon, joined us on the phone from Boston. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.